good day everyone and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues. Your favourites for a start. So welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. 3CR More than 1,000 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people served in the First World War and more than 4,000 in the Second World War. Then, of course, there was the Boer War from 1899 to 1902. Before Federation, the colonies were responsible for sending troops to South Africa. Indigenous soldiers served in the light horse units after joining up as regular soldiers. Due to poor record keeping, no one knows for sure how many actually went and how many actually came home. At the beginning of the First World War, Any attempts by Indigenous people to enlist were rejected, though many did serve by hiding their true identities. However, by 1917, there was a new military order which stated, Half-castes may be enlisted in the Australian Imperial Force, provided that the examining medical officers are satisfied that one of the parents is of European origin. Aboriginal soldiers were among those who fought at Gallipoli. At the start of the Second World War, that previous racist policy was dropped and any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men were allowed to enlist. A conservative estimate of perhaps a thousand servicemen and women fought in the Second World War. But given the previous conflict and its numbers, It's likely to be far more than that, particularly given that women also enlisted. Once again, record-keeping was very poor. With the growing fears of a Japanese invasion of Australia, nearly a thousand Torres Strait Islanders joined Australia's war effort between 1942 and 1945. Now, this is a high number, considering the population counted only in the thousands. They later became the Torres Strait Light Infantry Battalion and fought side by side with other Australians. Despite risking their lives and serving as tirelessly as that of non-Indigenous personnel, they received only one third of the pay of other Australian soldiers. Following a strike of some of the battalion in late December of 1943, the army agreed to increase the soldiers' pay to two-thirds of that of the non-Indigenous soldiers. These Indigenous people served on the ground, in the air, at sea and on horseback. Their time in the Defence Forces was, for many, their first time being treated as equals. Unfortunately, when they returned to civilian life, they returned to discrimination and prejudice. They were still being ejected from hotels and public places 
and they were still denied employment and they were also denied benefits offered to other returning service personnel. In 1945, after the Second World War ended, a war service land settlement agreement between the Commonwealth and states enabled returned service personnel access to land under soldier settlement schemes. Just as in the schemes introduced after the First World War, Aboriginal personnel were excluded. This is particularly punishing because the scheme offered land that had always been Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands. This is how we as Australians treated our returned service personnel. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet www.3cr.org.au Let me tell you about one of these men, Corporal Harry Thorpe, a military medal. Harry Thorpe was born at the Lake Tyres Mission Station up near Lake Centrance. He enlisted at Sail in February 1916 and embarked for Melbourne in April to join the 7th Battalion in France in July. He was wounded in action at Poissier and also at Bulcour. Lance Corporal Thorpe was awarded the Military Medal and promoted to Corporal for his conspicuous courage and leadership, which he showed during operations at Brutzinde near Ypres. During the advance of August 1918 at Leon Woods, southwest of Vauvillers in France, Thorpe was wounded. He died and was buried in the Heath Cemetery, Harbonnier in France, with his friend William Rawlings, another Indigenous military medal winner, who was killed on the same day. George Bennett, a Camilleroy man, enlisted to serve in the Great War. He was 35 years old, a widower, a labourer. He left the town of Munjindi on the border of New South Wales and Queensland and fought in the trenches in France. He served with the 29th Battalion and he enlisted as part of the big recruitment drive following the disaster at Gallipoli. He was wounded in action in 1918 and returned to Australia by ship in 1919 with possible mutilations, whatever that may mean, possible mutilations. Remember, this is when Aboriginal men weren't accepted as citizens and freedom was replaced with government policies such as the Protection Act, which controlled every aspect of their lives, from where you could work and live, to who you could marry, to if you could go to the shop or not, or if you could go and visit one of your cousins in the nearby town. So many Indigenous soldiers, like Mr Bennett, returned home scarred and their sacrifice ignored. So we fought for Australia and never got any honour or respect that he should have received. Some years later, he was arrested and jailed for being drunk and disorderly. Two days later, he was found dead in his cell. He died there alone. Not much has changed, has it, listener? Three 
And then there's Reg Saunders, the first Aboriginal officer in the Australian Army. In April of 1940, a young Victorian Goodinchamara man joined his mates on a troop train to Melbourne. They were leaving their country town to join the war against Germany. Reg Saunders would become Australia's highest profile Indigenous soldier. He would also be one of the first Indigenous commissioned officers in the Australian Army. Saunders was a timber contractor and a keen sportsman from Lake Conda. His family had a history of military service. Both his uncle and his father were World War I veterans. His uncle, William Rawlings, was awarded a military medal for bravery while serving in the 29th Battalion in France. Rich Saunders grew up hearing stories of the Great War from his father and from other Aboriginal men from the Lake Condor district. When Menzies declared that Australia was at war on the 3rd of September 1939, Saunders listened to the Prime Minister's speech and after talking with his father, he decided to enlist. After six months of training at Pacapano, he was sent to North Africa and his first experience of active service was an attack by three Messerschmitts, which he described as a hell of an experience. In April of 1941, Saunders was sent to Greece with his battalion. Their role was to support Allied forces against the coming German invasion. The Allied campaign had little chance of success the Allies were outnumbered by better trained and better equipped German infantry and armoured divisions. Their campaign was hindered by poor planning, difficult grit terrain and poor communication between Allied commanders. In late April, many of the Australians in Greece were withdrawn to Crete. Saunders' battalion was involved in heavy fighting against the Germans on Crete, along with the New Zealand Maori division the 27th Battalion helped 15,000 Allied troops retreat for evacuation. Saunders was one of about 3,000 Australians left behind on Crete. With the help of local Cretans, he evaded capture by the Germans for 12 months. He later escaped Crete on a trawler and reached Bardia in Libya. From there, he returned to Australia. In August of 1942, he rejoined his battalion in New Guinea, and from there his commanding officer nominated him for officer training. He completed his officer training and graduated as lieutenant in December 1944. For the rest of the war, Saunders commanded the battalion's number 10 platoon in New Guinea before returning to Australia. Saunders held a variety of casual jobs in the post-war years but he was unable to find anything permanent or long-term. He wasn't eligible for a soldier settlement block or returned soldiers' education courses. But when the Korean War broke out in 1950, he re-enlisted. He was promoted to captain and given command of C Company. He took part in the Battle of Kapyong in 1951. Saunders left the army in 1954 and on many occasions advocated for Aboriginal people's rights. 
Reg Saunders was a highly respected soldier and spokesperson for Indigenous rights. He died in Canberra in March of 1990. His legacy is not forgotten. You would be forgiven, listener, for not realising the number of Indigenous service personnel that we have had in Australia. Aboriginal people have served in every conflict and peacekeeping mission involving Australia since the 19th century. For many years, the service and sacrifice of these men and women was not adequately recognised, much less commemorated. In 2006, the late Auntie Dot Peters sought to change this and she initiated the honouring of Aboriginal service men and women in Victoria. So in 2007, the first Victorian Aboriginal Remembrance Service was held at the Shrine of Remembrance. The service gives Victorians an opportunity to come together to honour and to recognise the sacrifices and invaluable contributions of Aboriginal service men and women to Australia's Defence Force. When they set up the mission To break the old tradition The native tongue was not allowed to speak Auntie Dot at Karen Derrick grew up proud and strong as her grandmother taught her to weed carol on. Oh 
Peters on May the 31st every year in Victoria at the Shrine of Remembrance. A special ceremony is held to commemorate all those Indigenous men and women who served their country. And the lessons of the mission she took them on board We're all equal in the arms of the Lord Thank you, Dave Arden, for that terrific song about Auntie Dot Peters. And the reality is, listener, Indigenous people continue to be marginalised. We live in a racist society and not much has changed since those men and women served in the wars. In a couple of weeks' time... I'll be dedicating an episode of this program to The Voice. So I hope you'll be tuned for that. But in the meantime, let's move to a stalwart of this program, and that's The Bagman. And in this episode, he'll be looking at some union matters and some strange religious questions. 3CR Good morning, Susan. Good morning to all you listeners. Now, let's start today's program by being serious to start with and lead into some more whimsical observations as we go through. Now, I want to say, when will the ALP realise that they don't own the trade union movement? Because the union movement is under the spotlight again because of the doings of the Hospital Workers' Union. Now, this union is in the headlines again, probably the most corrupt and lazy union supported by the insiders at the Labor Party. Now, think Shorten, Kitchen, Jackson and now Asmar. This week, I've read the IBAC report naming... Uh, mainly Daniel Andrews and whatever. It's obvious the Secretary of the Health Workers Union, Diana Asmar, and her office manager placed enormous pressure on the Health Department and its minister at the time to produce training for 1,000 health workers. Now that in itself is a good thing. The Hospital Workers Union under Diana Asmar purchased a company called Seven Seas Training, which was used as a vehicle to be granted $1.2 million 
from the Labor government. It seems that the training scheme was so shonky, shonky, it only provided 87 workers out of 1,000 before the contract was terminated. Now, reading the report, it becomes obvious that the Minister's Office, the DHHS, and all involved that the scheme was more than shonky, but the pressure was being, being applied by other political forces in the ALP. Now, the report named some interesting people, Makakos, Asma, Sumarek, and, and others, to name, but fails to name her office manager at the time, or maybe in the report, she is the person named Person A or Person B. Well, we will wait and see. Maybe respect for a certain person regarded as a saint in the political movement and the media since her passing. One fact is, Kimberly Kitching was the office manager of the Health Workers Union during this period and was recommended by Commissioner Watson at the Royal Commission into Trade Unions to be charged with perjury and fraud, along with asthma. Forging documents for entry permits for the federal government for incompetent and lazy trade union officials. Now the report is clear that the training scheme had serious party influence from senior advisers to public servants or those working with the union. Uh, with the union application sort of was about a bid for money from the government to stem the financial output from that particular union. Now at this point, Susan, I wanted to be a little bit whimsical because we've been seeing documentaries on television programs about Christianity and about certain ch churches ripping off their members and we take into account the Hillsong Church and uh, as only a couple of days ago, the Potter's House Christian Identity. Maybe someone can answer a couple of questions for me today. We know that Jesus Christ died on this day for our sins all those years ago. So we couldn't eat meat on pies on a Friday or we went to hell. No passing go. No collecting 200 straight to hell for eternity. Standing upside down in a bucket of rather warm shit. Now, first question, and I hope you can answer it. What happened to his old cheese? Immaculate Mary. Second question, what did she die of? And did she also suffer for our sins? If she died on a Wednesday, can we eat sushi or will we go to hell? Talk about his old stepdad. Joseph said you get a look in when it came to a bit of doona dancing. You have to ask the question, did he suffer sexual dysfunction or did he just continue to knock the top off it? Those three wise dudes, did they have a sat nav or did they really follow a star? You've got to ask yourself the same question. Lastly, 
the Catholic Church has changed the rules about going to heaven or hell. If you, in the old days, if you ate a meat pie on Friday or backdoored your neighbour's missus without going to confession before you got run over by Scott Morrison's bus, you went straight to hell. Now they say you can eat a meat pie on a Friday or sushi on a Wednesday. Well, I want to know about though, all those poor bastards who went to hell before they changed the rules. Do they now get a free pass out of hell? Let me know because I have a lot more questions. And on that note, Susan, let's, uh, let's go out in the same old way. Let's dare to struggle, dare to win. And if you don't fight, you lose. Thanks, Bagman. And we'll finish off this episode today with some more Dave Arden. This time, Dave's accompanied by Paul Kelly. And I'll see you all next week. Same time, same place. My great uncles were ordinary men They fought in the First World War Left a wife and children When the army came to call They were sectioned at Gallipoli Stood on the Turkey shore all around so many young faces Some didn't come back at all When freedom called Those wounded men and women stood tall When freedom called Oh God, is there nothing left at all? When freedom Andy Arden came from Framlingham He fought in the Second World War A full-grown man but not a citizen He couldn't vote under the law they sectioned him in Gundich Mara country On the Western District shore Drafted as an MP To uphold the army's law When freedom called Those Gundich men and women stood tall when freedom called Oh God, is there nothing left at all? When freedom Sometimes those men would sit there quiet 
go drifting in their minds It seemed to me they could see the spirits Of the ones they left behind They fought for more than just their homeland They fought for respect To walk down a road like any other man Lest we forget When freedom called Those Murrah men and women stood tall When freedom called Oh God, is there nothing left at all? When freedom called Those good little men and women stood tall When free 